Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. We at Israel Policy Forum are pleased to present this episode as part of a series in partnership with Terrestrial Jerusalem, an Israeli organization committed to identifying and tracking developments in Jerusalem that could impact a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Each month, we'll discuss different issues shaping the policy conversation on Jerusalem. We first touched upon the question of Sheikh Jarrah in the second installment in this series, which we recorded back in May. The Israeli Supreme Court went on to postpone its ruling on the status of Palestinian families who are facing potential evictions and who had appealed judgments against them by lower courts. The new court date was set for August 2nd, but rather than issue a definitive ruling, the justices proposed a compromise between the Palestinian residents and the Israeli settler-linked company angling to take their homes, and neither side is rushing to accept this deal. To help us understand what's going on, I'm joined, as always, by Danny Seidemann, an attorney based in Jerusalem and founder of the Terrestrial Jerusalem Organization. Thanks for joining us again, Danny. My pleasure. So how did the court hearing on August 2nd go down? How did the settlers and the Sheikh Jarrah residents each present their cases? Well, the court hearing, which was a panel of three Supreme Court justices, uh, dealt with a motion by the residents uh, moving that they, they be allowed to have a second appeal to lower court verdicts that basically allowed them to be evicted. Um, under law, uh, one is entitled to one appeal, and the residents have had that appeal from the magistrate's court, which is the lower court, to the district court, both ruled against the residents. Uh, this hearing, which um, was divided into two, um, the first half, maybe more, was devoted by an attempt of the Supreme Court to exercise all of its powers of persuasion to push the parties to an agreed settlement. It was very clear, for whatever interpretation one gives to it, that the court does not want to write a verdict uh, in this matter. Uh, But it is a court of law, and in the second um, uh, part of the hearing, uh, each side uh, laid down their claims and was challenged by the court on various issues. That is basically the structure of what took place in this court hearing. There was nothing conclusive. There will be an additional hearing or more. Uh, the court has not despaired yet of arriving at a compromise agreement. Um, but I think there are a number of things that uh, we can possibly learn from what went down at the hearing. So what did each side have to say to this panel of justices and how did the court respond to the claims made by the plaintiffs and the appellants? The major issue that the court dealt with was um, the fact that there have been 18 um, judgments or decisions by previous courts, including a Supreme Court verdict from 1981, which ruled on um, 
these same issues between the same parties. Um, uh, and there is a pillar of Israeli jurisprudence about the finality of a court proceeding. I think it's res judicata. I am probably mispronouncing it because I never came across it uh, in English or Latin before. It's always ma'asebedin in Hebrew. And that is uh, once the court has ruled and uh, appeals have been exhausted, that's it. It's over. So the the court um, indicated um, we will have a good deal of trouble dealing with the uh, appeal on its merits. We're not going to get to the substantive issues uh, because the matter has already been decided in the past. Now, there were uh, oblique references to the substance, but... um, Basically, there was a subtext to the effect, we're not going to get to the substance of your claims because we have an insurmountable barrier of ma'asabitin. It's been ruled upon. Um, There were some pointed questions that went to the settlers. Uh, Number one, um, did did the previous courts really rule about who owns this property? Or did they only rule that the Palestinians were protected tenants, but did not make a clear determination as to who the owner was? Uh, another one of the issues that arose is, you know, um, in nowhere in these verdicts has the property been precisely identified. This is uh, land with unsettled registry and title. Um, so what will happen if the day comes and um, when they finally get to settling the registration of the land, they say, oops, uh, we made a mistake here. Um, basically, most of the court's efforts was not to deal with these issues on the one hand, uh, but um, to get the parties to compromise. And since those lower court rulings, there's also been the discovery of Jordanian government documents that indicate uh, whether or not the Jordanian government was actually moving to transfer title over those properties to the Palestinian residents in the 1960s, correct? That, that is correct. You know, one, one of the claims uh, of the settlers, which has been accepted in the past by the court, is um, the Jordanians may have committed to give title uh, to the residents, but they never did it. Well, it turns out that the procedure was much more advanced than what had been previously uh, thought, that uh, it was on the brink of being concluded in May 1967, uh, immediately before the 1967 war. This was, again, new evidence um, that had not been known before. And but even then, uh, the court said we did not see in the expert opinion about this new Jordanian evidence any um, uh, relation to the fact that this subject has already been adjudicated. So it is clear that the court is aware of these new claims. The court is treating them seriously but has indicated that it is not sufficient to overcome the finality of prior judgments. 
basically they said, uh, what you're asking for uh, is something that is customarily um, reserved to criminal proceedings. You're asking for a retrial. Well, if you want a retrial, you have to file an independent suit uh, asking for a retrial and not to do so uh, as um, something that is part and parcel of a second appeal. I want to take a step back here before we get into the compromise that the Supreme Court ultimately proposed. Uh, You've thrown around the term a couple of times, protected tenancy, and this derives from the 1982 agreement uh, that came out of the Supreme Court case then. Can you define protected tenancy for our listeners? Uh, Protected tenancy um, is a legal construct that derives from the mandatory period and um, arrived under the special circumstances of the British mandate, um, uh, dealing with a shortage of housing, price gouging, and things of that nature. Um, A protected tenant is somebody who um, is not the owner of a premises, pays rent, um, but that rent uh, does not expire during the lifetime of the tenant and perhaps a generation after that if it is bequeathed in the appropriate way. As a rule, uh, the rental payments are nominal, uh, the increments are small, Um, So the rent is is negligible. Um, There is always a vulnerability in being a protected tenant because there's a clause in the law, the the protected tenancy law, um, Article 131, which gives a list of uh, causes which allow the landlord to evict the tenant. Um, you built illegally, you renovated uh, in ways that needed the consent of the landlord and you didn't, or you didn't pay rent. And the Palestinians here did not pay rent to the settlers for principled reasons. You're not the owners. Uh, If you have abandoned the property or if the owner wants to build for himself, um, either to get a building permit for a new building or to raise the old one. All of these are causes of action which allow the landlord to evict the tenant. And that is precisely what's happening here. The Palestinians did not pay rent to the settlers. That is not disputed. And their claimed cause of action is, we're the owner, you're the tenant, you violated the tenancy laws, we can evict you. And until now, the lower courts have agreed with that. So tell us about what the Supreme Court proposed in terms of a compromise between the Sheikh Jarrah residents and the settler-linked company, Nachlat Shimon. First of all, um, they put it down in writing, (laughs) but none of us have seen it. Um, uh, It is very uncustomary for uh, there to be a document anywhere in Israel which is not leaked, but it was presented to the parties and uh, its contents are not known with precision. But from the deliberations, it's possible to deduce uh, what is involved. Um, And I must say that I think that the 
court did display a good deal of sensitivity to the concerns of the Palestinian residents without uh, giving them the judicial relief that they're seeking. It was also clear that the court uh, did not meander into this minefield cluelessly. They were very well prepared. What they are proposing is that the tenants will be recognized as protected tenants. Um, their tenancy will begin anew because the protected tenancy began in 1967. It may be expiring soon. So they will start the clock afresh so they, there's a reasonable possibility of the Palestinians remaining in these homes for another 50 or 60 or 70 years, but not indefinitely. In the framework of that agreement, there will be no recognition of Palestinian ownership. Um, and that's enormously sensitive. Um, at the core of this dispute is not only the practicalities of eviction, but will the Palestinians recognize the legitimacy and the fact of the ownership of the settlers? And they have refused to do so. Well, the court came in ready for this and they proposed the following construct. Number one, the settlers will assert their ownership. The Palestinians will not be required to explicitly acknowledge that ownership. Uh, the Palestinians will explicitly recognize their status as protected tenant as a, is claimed they had done in the past. Um, the Palestinians will be required to pay rent, but they will not be required to pay it directly to the settlers, uh, since that would be an interpretation of recognizing the settlers' ownership of the property. But the court is proposing a mechanism whereby it apparently will be paid um, through some third uh, party. Um, the Palestinians will not be able to assert their claims of ownership in any future court proceeding. Should they be sued again, for example, they cannot defend themselves by saying, um, uh, we own the property. They can deny the ownership of the settlers, but they cannot assert their own. Uh, there is one exception to that, and it's a, it's a major one. As I mentioned earlier, the title to this property has not been concluded, and it's a long and protracted legal proceeding um, that is required before the registration of title is finalized. When that proceeding commences regarding this property, the Palestinians will be able to assert their claims of ownership and nothing in the settlement agreement or in the actions of the Palestinians will be prejudicial to their claims. So the Palestinians uh, will be able to say um, with some authority, we haven't entirely waived our claim to ownership. And that's not a fiction that may have practical implications. On the other hand, uh, the settlers will basically have tacit resignation of their ownership. Now, neither side 
accepted the settlement as proposed by the court. It has been reported that the Palestinians rejected the settlement and the settlers accepted it. That is not correct. Neither side rejected it and neither side accepted it. It will be very difficult for the Palestinians to accept it. Uh, I don't think it's impossible, but they have a major dilemma that they are confronting. If they agree to some form of the proposal of the court, it is not at all clear that the settlers will accept it. Uh, so um, there is nothing that took place in court that can cause us to be optimistic that this will be settled short of a court verdict. And if there will be a court verdict, it appears to me that the court will rule in favor of the settlers and against the residents. And then um, we have a big problem. We have a big problem now. It will be much bigger then. So what you're describing, this essentially just extends the post-1982 status quo in Sheikh Jarrah. That, that's, that's correct. Um, with one exception, that it begins anew. The, 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 the tenancy starts all over again, should this be agreed, which is means that you will not be confronting the expiration date of the tenancy five years from now, but 50 or 60 or 70 years from now, unless the settlers again try and evict them. It's not a, a risk-free proposition um, for the Palestinian residents. But the substance of the arrangement is more or less the same. Uh, yes, although um, there is greater clarity on uh, what one may or may not claim in terms of the actual ownership of the policy, something that, uh, uh, as a result of the agreement, something that did not take place in the framework of earlier deliberations. Now, um, one of the interesting things that did not take place in the court uh, was um, the outside world. Um, the court intentionally created in that courtroom a world apart. I went through the court record numerous times. The word Israeli, Palestinian, Jew, Arab, occupation are not mentioned. Uh, and the courts kind of sniped at the press and the international community in the room when the Council for the residents said, I would like to have a half hour break to go out and consult my clients. The court said, oh, no, you don't. If you go outside, you're going to be subject to the influence of others, basically implying that uh, the activists, the um, um, press uh, and members of the diplomatic court would make it more difficult for them to compromise. Um, so. This was basically an attempt by the court to leave reality out in, in the service of a settlement. And they said as much, and it's problematic. At various points, uh, the court said, don't talk history. You've got history, they've got history. Don't talk ideology, we're being pragmatic. Um, I can understand their attempt, which I think is correct, 
not to allow the mutually exclusive narratives to prevent something that could lead to bloodshed. On the other hand, uh, it is also true that their sniping and their, you know, leave history and ideology out of this uh, was interpreted by the Palestinians um, as saying, your history doesn't count. Um, don't forget that these are the vulnerable parties who are in danger. And um, that was interpreted by them as being dismissive of their concerns by the court, which it, it appeared that way, even if it was unintentional. Before we move on, let's hear a quick message from our friends at the New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. Hey, I'm Sally Abed. I'm a Palestinian activist in Israel. And I'm Dina Kraft. I'm a Jewish-Israeli journalist. And we are the hosts of Groundwork, a podcast about Palestinians and Jews refusing to accept the status quo. We're starting things off with a mini-series, the Mixed Cities Edition. Each episode features a different mixed city, a city where Jews and Palestinians live together. Groundwork is powered by the Alliance for Middle East Peace and the New Israel Fund. Danny, you alluded to the fact that both the Palestinian residents and the settlers seem to be uh, against the compromise, at least right now. Why isn't the court's proposal making either side happy? There's something very interesting about the settler position is we don't know who the hell they are. This is a shell company that was registered in 2000, and 2000 I believe, um, in Delaware. Its officials are unknown. There's a lawyer in the United States associated with it, and it's uh, owned by a series of basically shell companies. Uh, we don't know who they are. We we know more or less what their ideology is and uh, what their goals are. There's one individual who usually works behind the scenes by the name of Tzachi Mamo. So we're assuming things about the settlers. And... The settlers have good reason to oppose a settlement because they have the upper hand. They've got, uh, you know, court verdicts allowing them to evict the residents, and they have a Supreme Court that's indicating we're not going to intervene with the rulings of the lower court. It goes beyond that. One of, I mentioned earlier that one of the causes of action uh, that allow the settlers to evict the Palestinian residents is getting a building permit. And in the past, in previous court proceedings, they said, yeah, we would like to raise these 28 homes and we would like to build a spanking new Jewish neighborhood there, complex. So all they would have to do a year after the settlement is go get a building permit and the Palestinians would be evicted. Unless the settlers waive their intention to build during the course of the tenancy, there's not going to be an agreement because there will be a sort of Damocles holding over the Palestinians' heads. Um, they have not given their cards away, but I would not in the least be surprised if they reject any kind of settlement. In terms of the Palestinians, it's much more complicated, and it really cuts to the core of the dialectic um, which uh, grips Palestinian identity in East Jerusalem since 1967. The Palestinians are not politically empowered. They're living under occupation. Um, 
and they're Palestinians. They're not Israelis. You know, the, the folks in Umal Fachem and Haifa are Palestinian citizens of Israel. They're Israeli in some way. Palestinians of East Jerusalem are not. And the uh, two poles of their identity is resist. We are not going to allow Israel to denationalize Palestinian East Jerusalem, fragment our society socially and geographically. We're going to resist. And that would lead them to oppose a settlement, which basically would cause them to make painful compromises in this resistance. On the other hand, they've got to live. And the other pole of their existence is you've got to adapt. Uh, we've got to survive. We've got to hold on. We've got mouths to feed and families um, uh, to give homes to. So to give you another example, the Palestinians of East Jerusalem won't accept Israeli citizenship. They're not offered it, but they don't want it. Uh, they don't vote in municipal elections, about 1% do, um, but they will receive social welfare benefits. And the rule is we will do whatever it takes to survive as long as we do not have to barter uh, with our national identity. Now, the dilemma that is being posed by the court is what's it going to be? Are you going to resist Hold your ground and say, no, we are not going to waive our claims. We're not going to say we're only um, uh, protected tenants, even at the risk of being evicted three months from now or six months from now or a year ago. Or are we going to adapt and make the painful compromises because we've got mouths to feed? Um, one of the problems is that the Palestinians of Sheikh Jarrah have been enormously successful in building a global campaign, the likes of which I've never seen before, um, with the engagement of uh, governments, um, uh, public opinion, members of Congress, including members of Congress who generally are very supportive of Israel. Um, and to a certain extent, they may be captive of their success. They're a symbol and symbols don't compromise. So they're confronting this dilemma, but they're also under um, huge pressure, somewhat of their own making, not to compromise. Uh, so I rather tend to believe that at the end of the day, they will not agree, although there are very compelling reasons for them to go along. I don't believe that anybody can make that decision except the residents. I've been asked, what would you advise them? And my answer is, I would not advise them. I'm an Israeli. I'm their occupier. It's for them to decide. I hope that they're given the space um, uh, to make a decision without pressure. But when asked, Danny, what would you do? My answer was very simple. Today, when, I have, when we have three grown daughters not living at home, I'd say, let's hold the ground and stand on principle. Had it been 15 years ago when we had three daughters at home, I would have accepted the compromise. So again, it is far from unequivocal and black and white. The Israeli Supreme Court issued a stay on evictions from Sheikh Jarrah early last week. I believe that was on August 15th. What is the significance of this and how long can an arrangement like that last? As a rule, once a verdict is handed down, 
it can be executed, it can be carried out. And the fact that one um, appeals that verdict uh, does not automatically stay the judgment. It does not prevent it from being carried out. Now, don't forget, in the current situation, we are talking about a second appeal. But since the consequences of this are so great, you know, removing people from homes that they've lived in since the 1950s, the court in the current case and in another case have granted that stay, basically saying we will defer the eviction at least until there will be a verdict um, or on the question as to whether to hold this second appeal. Now, there are four families more or less involved in this specific case, but there are 28 families in this area of Sheikh Jarrah, and there are court proceedings against, I believe, 15 of them. Um, so what happened last week is another batch of families are now coming to the same situation as the current ones, and the court once again did stay those proceedings. Now, um, one of the interesting questions that has arisen uh, is as follows. These evictions in Shimona Tzaddik, this area of Sheikh Jarrah, are not taking place in isolation. And there are eviction proceedings taking place elsewhere in Shimona Tzaddik, which I just mentioned, but also across the road in Sheikh Jarrah or in Salwan in Batal al-Hawa. The question then arises, will the ruling or the, the agreement be something of a precedent for the other cases? And the answer is that it will likely be a precedent for other Shimona Tzaddik cases because they were subject to the same 18 court judgments in the past. This will not be a precedent to the eviction proceedings across the road in Umharun and Sheikh Jarrah or in Batan al-Hawa because this insurmountable problem of the finality of a judgment of Ma'asad Beidin does not exist. It will be easier for the court to um, hear the residents on the merits of their case, something that will be very difficult here. But basically what the court is saying is, you know, we, we, we understand your plight. Uh, and we understand that uh, the, the people in the press and the international community activists are at liberty to form their opinions. We're not. We are the Israeli Supreme Court. And one of the pillars of Israeli jurisprudence is the finality of a court proceeding you cannot ask us to deviate so radically from very clear and well-established uh, um, uh, legal principles in Israel. And that makes it very difficult for the court, if not impossible, to deal with the merits of the claims of the residents uh, and ultimately rule in their favor. That is a problem that does not exist in the other cases. Before we close out, I have to ask, where is the Israeli government in all of this? As we're recording, Prime Minister Bennett is getting ready for his first meeting with President Biden on Thursday, and Sheikh Jarrah is something that the U.S. administration is interested in. Well, the U.S. administration is extremely concerned about this, and Secretary Blinken has said so publicly and behind closed doors uh, more than once. 
I would say, since we're talking about tenancy laws, um, the Israeli government is an absentee landlord. Um, this um, eviction proceeding is part of a broader government policy of targeting entirely entire Palestinian neighborhoods, communities, uh, for eviction in order to turn them over to the settlers. Now, I'm not accusing uh, the Bennett administration of initiating this, but they they inherited it. Um, there are vital national interests involved here. If there will be an eviction or even a court ruling, every Palestinian that I know is going to be thinking of one word, and that's Nakba. Uh, we're back in 1948 with Palestinians being displaced. If you want a 1948 conflict, you kick the hornet's nest of 1948. That's exactly what you're going to get. Intercommunal skirmishing, and we'll have that within Israel as well. Um, Israel's um, staunchest supporters are deeply disturbed about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah and are telling the government of Israel, we're not going to be able to defend you and support of Israel will decline steeply and in some places collapse. Now, nothing prepared uh, Mr. Bennett and his cabinet to deal with this issue, especially within the first hundred days, but they inherited that. Um, they have heard this um, not only from the administration in Washington, but friends of Israel in Europe and uh, major members of the Democratic Party who are deeply concerned. And I'm not talking about the squad. I'm talking about you know, what we would call, I say, mainstream Democrats. Uh, I am convinced at this point that the Bennett government and all of official Israel would like nothing more than for Sheikh Jarrah simply to go away, make it disappear. But nobody um, has the integrity and the courage to do what's necessary to make it go away. The government expects the courts to do the dirty work for it. The courts say, not in as many words, you know, don't. Don't put this on us. We're going to have to rule it according to law. The attorney general is entitled under law to join any legal proceeding in which there are vital national interests involved. Um, the court asked him to respond to the possibility of his joining and um, in a display of his customary courage, he said no. So, uh, Basically, you have a situation where the government of Israel is absent on this. Now, there was a report, I believe it's a credible report, although I can't verify it, that Israel asked the United States um, to influence the Palestinian residents of Sheikh Jarrah. I have to tell you, I don't know whether it's funnier or more pathetic. It's an indication that Israel has so abandoned the Palestinians of East Jerusalem that there's nobody in official Israel that can reach out to the residents of East Jerusalem in general or the residents of Sheikh Jarrah in particular. But that applies to the United States as well. When the United States moved the embassy and recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, it basically disqualified itself as a role of broker. The Palestinians are still not talking to the American government 
because they haven't taken any serious measures to redress the damage that was inflicted by Trump. Uh, the Palestinian uh, of East Jerusalem have almost as much contempt for the Palestinian Authority as they do for Israel. There is precious little or no leadership politically in East Jerusalem because any leadership that has emerged, Israel has jailed, exiled, or otherwise deterred. We've had a policy of fragmenting Palestinian society, and we've been very successful. And now when we want a leadership that we can engage with, we've discovered how successful we've been in fragmenting Palestinian society, and there's no way we can talk to anybody. Um, that's where the government of Israel is. Just something to clarify, when you're speaking about steps that the U.S. could take to redress what happened under the previous administration, are you speaking about Jerusalem specifically because, you know, there were things like the uh, holds placed on aid that was supposed to be dispensed to the Palestinians, and that has been walked back? It's clear that um, the Palestinian Authority and many Palestinians uh, view the Biden administration as much different from uh, the Trump administration and have pinned some hopes on them. And some of those hopes are high hopes, maybe too high hopes. But Jerusalem is a special issue. Um, there is an embassy. Um, there's a recognition of Israeli Jerusalem. There is no recognition by the United States of the Palestinian equities in the city. There have been declarations by um, uh, Secretary Blinken, and they, they've been good. But nothing's been reversed. Now, the United States announced its intention to reopen a consulate. That's an important move. Um, but there appeared to be some second thoughts, perhaps, or perhaps waiting until the budget uh, in Israel passes so it doesn't bring down the government. Uh, but I have been at social events where I'm talking uh, to a Palestinian colleague and friend, and somebody from the U.S. Embassy will come and join the conversation, and uh, the Palestinian will participate until I introduce the person as somebody from the embassy, and they'll turn on their heels and walk away. The United States, by unilaterally de trying to determine to take Jerusalem off the table, basically took itself off the table and engaged in a colossal act of self-marginalization. The United States' ability to influence what happens in East Jerusalem was uh, severely curtailed by the Trump administration. And that has not yet been amended by the Biden administration, although there is an indication of their willingness to do so. Danny, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your insights and expertise on this issue. Clearly, it's still a developing story, although what's happened in the last month, I think, gives us a little bit more of an idea of how things will shake out uh, as opposed to the way we ended on previous episodes. So thank you again for joining the podcast. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you soon.